Hey, welcome back to the podcast. And it's episode 60. Can you believe it? Oh my gosh. I I think I think I've done like 30 episodes this year. My goal was to do 12. So, ta-da. Here we are, episode 60 with Dr. Mike Kitsko. Yeah, he's the assistant DS and district secretary of the Eastern Michigan District. And wow, this is a great episode. Um, so we talk about obstacles in ministry, resilience, and taking initiative. All right, people, listen up. Man, there's some good stuff. You're probably going to have to listen to this twice. Uh, I mean... I think in a year like 2020, we really need to hear this, right? And I just appreciate his willingness to share his journey uh, with all of us, with, with me, with you, the listener, and just encourage us to stay the course. So hang in there all the way to the end because we'll really get into some some deeper stuff about halfway through and you're just going to be encouraged. Um So that's all I have to say, and enjoy the episode. We really need to tell better stories instead of complaining about it, right? What if we just start telling the stories and flood the airwaves with something different? Thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for asking. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how's your how's your new puppy oh uh, all puppy yeah uh, yep active um great great puppy yeah so, he's not gonna get very big right how, how- no he weighs uh, about seven pounds now and they don't think he'll get over about nine yeah nine to ten the sibling puppy the gildners have monica and john oh yeah that's right and he is about twice the size of our puppy, though they came from the same litter with the same father and the same mother. <laughs> so he's going to be a bigger, much bigger one. Yeah. That nine, 10 pounds, that's about my size. That's about what I right. can handle. So. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's about five pounds. That's about five pounds less than our last dog. So. Well, it's been a year. Yes, it has been. That's for sure. (laughs) How are you faring? Doing well. We're coming to the end of it. Yep, doing well. Lots of changes in 2021, too. Awesome. Yes, yep. (laughs) Yeah. So what's your, like, official title right now? I believe it's assistant, uh, assistant district superintendent. Okay. And district secretary. Those two titles, yeah. Which just doesn't seem like it really captures everything. Right. <laughs> that you do. Because uh, you oversee the um, course of study. Yeah, I've done that for quite a while now. That yeah, started how- under Steve Anthony about 12, 12 13 years ago um, when I started kind of chairing the studies portion of it yeah Yeah. well don it was it was interesting don was secretary of the studies and i was chair of the studies 
So before you were assistant DS, you were at Central, Flint Central. And what was your what was your role there? Because you started you started under one pastor, and right. had, and then you switched roles. Um, so talk a little bit about that, like how you the role you started in there first, and then that whole transition within the context of already being on staff there. I started off came to Flint Central June first of two thousand two, um, but the primary purpose was to start a young adult ministry and other duties as assigned. And what quickly happened is other duties got assigned. Um, so the young adult aspect got very little of the attention though that's what my full-time title was young adult pastor. Right. Um, so I did a variety of things. Um, and about a year after, well, 14 months after I started there, the lead pastor um, passed away of a heart attack while he was on a mission trip in South Africa. And we went through a time of transition and waiting and wondering, would I have a job? Would I not have a job? What's this going to look like? And during that time is when Dr. Gardner was called to be the next pastor. And he asked all of us to stay on. And about two months after he was there, he asked me, basically to write my job description and focused in on kind of the adult education, assimilation, and those areas, um, and did that then for about nine years with Dr. Gardner there. Yeah. It, this is interesting. Um, I think you're the first person I've interviewed that's went through a pastoral change, because um, most of them have been lead pastors. So, But yeah. you know what's when, like when we first started out in the process, like that was one of the things that Rob was really like concerned about, like that stressed him out, that whole part of, um, you know, with our denomination, when the senior pastor resigns, then everybody resigns and you're kind of up in the air. Um, so we just talk a little bit about being in that place of in between, because I think that especially people going through the process, um, towards ordination, I think that really stresses them out. I don't know, I think it stresses ordained people out too, but uh, just uh, like, how do you navigate, how you navigate that personally, but then also spiritually and professionally? Yeah, it's always an interesting dynamic. Um, when I went through it, when Gavin Rath was the pastor and he died of the heart attack, it was a really hard time for me. I was single. Um, I had only been here for about a year, had just purchased a home, um, and there was some discontent with the direction I was trying to go with the young adults. I, I remember during that transition time, a couple of young adults um, that were not members, weren't even very active in the young adult group, took me to the altar to pray over me, and they prayed that I would leave. Oh, wow. Um, pounding me on the back while doing so. So I had all of that going on. Um, and I had put out some resumes. It's the only time in the ministry where I really had put out resumes, um, just wondering what might happen. I wasn't sure that the current lead or the lead pastor at Central wanted me there. I wasn't sure that the board, there was no feedback. So it was kind of aimless during that time. 
um, and making some decisions really near the nearer the end of that on whether or not I was going to stay in ministry. I actually was just before Dr. Gardner arrived, uh, one of the families at the church let me use their cabin for a week. And I took a stack of about 30 books and holed up oh, in the cabin gosh. for a week um, and read, watched some movies and kind of just rebuilt where I knew that God wanted me in ministry. If it was at the central, that's where it would be. If it wasn't, then he had something else in store. Um, but some of the way that my view of the whole transition happened is I stepped into a lead pastorate with an existing staff. And I was encouraged to keep that staff. And their resignations were never really offered to me. And that particular staff member was... Um, had stabbed me in the back multiple times while I was the lead pastor uh, because he really wanted to be the lead pastor. And when I left that church, the DS appointed him the lead pastor. So I've seen it from both sides. Right. Um, and that kind of has shaped my perspective. I understand why a staff member's resignation is on the table. And I see the heartache that that creates, but I also see the heartache on the other side when it's not really on the table. Right. It's hard to come in and then create that same unity that you had before. Um, you know, when the only, the only dynamic that changes is the lead pastor and all the rest of the staff is the same. It would, it would have to be a really unique situation to be able to come in and have that. And even if, even if you do, it's going to take a couple of years to develop it. Right. Yeah. And I've always had the perspective. I mean, I've been in staff roles now for 18 years that my job isn't to shine. My job isn't to make my opinions known. My job is to really figure out what that lead person's vision is and how do I help that become a reality and how do I make that person look better? And when that's my perspective of my role, then when that person leaves, then it's whoever the next person is, is the same kind of philosophy that drives that. And that's a different philosophy than when one is in a lead role. Right. I mean, it's, there's such a need for pastors that have that idea, have that view of staff ministry. Right. I think we'd have, we'd have a lot more stronger lead pastors if we had more people called and that were willing to step into that kind of a role. Right. I think I've said this before in terms of lead pastors that come into inheriting staff. Um, there needs to be a high degree of ego strength on the pastor that they're not threatened by the existing staff and the relationships the existing staff has. But if they have the ego strength, and the self-awareness, they can step into that environment and really benefit from it and be catapulted in their leadership. But there is, it has to, it takes unique vision, unique roles, unique understanding of pastoral staffs to do that well. Right. We need a class on that, Mike. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I remember sitting in a seminary class 
long time ago. And it just resonated with me, the idea that in a given church, the office of pastor, there's one office of pastor and a staff fills that office, but we all have a very unique role within that office, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And as staff members, my role is very different than what the lead pastor role is and not viewing well, my office can have a separate vision than that office and a separate vision from that office. That's just a recipe for chaos and dysfunction that will embed itself in the whole system and it will derail churches time and time again. And it makes it into popularity contests too. Right. Now, you didn't, did you start as a staff pastor? Yeah, my very first assignment um, out of, it was a couple of years after I had finished seminary and I spent some time looking for a role. I actually started off as a children's pastor at my home church um, and served there for three and a half, just over three years, really bivocationally or trivocationally, depending on how you want to look at it. I'll say multivocationally. And I did that for about three, just over three years before a lead pastor had opened up. And I was invited to interview for that and eventually called to that church. All right. Now, I know part of your story because you shared it at Mac. Um, I want to talk about some of the obstacles. But first, let's talk about just your your call, because I know you resisted it for a long time, too. Right. I fought the Lord on a call for a long, long time um, while I was in college, particularly. And finally, I just declared that my major was going to be kind of youth ministry. And that was about all I was going to give God at that point. Um, and I, I remember saying, God, if you have called me to ministry, I had volunteered to teach a junior high Sunday school class for the summer when I was home from college. I said, well, Lord, if you're really calling me, you're going to cause these teens to come up and say how great a job I'm doing. And I figured that was going to be an easy one for me to control. I mean, one, junior hires are not free to give compliments. And two, if I just don't do that good, then they'll never say that was good. <laughs> and But I, I wrote my own curriculum, which I guess in hindsight might have been a mistake. And I remember her name was Jill. She came up afterwards and said, Mike, that was amazing. Thank you so much. That was great. And then another girl came up. And the same thing, I said, oh, crud. And so I, I, some roundabouts with God, and I finally said, okay, I'm going to declare ministry as my major. I was going to study for youth and thought it would be staff roles and everything like that. Um, I really didn't know anybody who was like, I'm called to be a lead pastor. I'm going to study to be that. Um, it just... Things didn't function that way at the college, but I declared the youth ministry, and no sooner than I did that, that fall began really sensing that God might be calling me to preach, and that scared me to no end because, I mean, youth ministry scared me, ministry scared me, preaching really scared me because that would require me to be in front of people and talk for 20 minutes would be a really, really long time. And uh, that scared me to no end. 
and I battled with the Lord on that. Um, I had a journal during that time that for a long time I would go back and read my journal entries in that time, that shaping time. I told my parents and several months went by and my dad then asked me, so how's that going? I said, uh, I'm not worried about it. I'm not called. And he said, oh, okay. I just, I didn't want the pressure from my parents. And the longer that summer happened, and I shared with a couple of youth pastors on the district that had kind of taken an interest in me and my call to ministry. Um, I had worked at the district teen camp that summer and had a blast and hit it off with them. And I shared with them and they both laughed at me and said, Mike, you just need to get this in your head now. God's calling you to do this. No matter how often you fight it, eventually God's going to win. And it was the next night. It was a Monday night in August. And I had picked up my Bible to do devotions. And it was the Gospel of Mark when Jesus was calling them. And they just went and they didn't argue. And I was deeply convicted. So I shut my Bible because I didn't want to deal with that conviction and turned on, this will date me, a cassette tape, and I pushed play, um, and the song that started playing was The Highest Call is on My Life, Living for Jesus No Matter the Price, and I was like, oh, no, and I got out of my bed, and I knelt there, and I just said, okay, God, you're going to have to make this possible, um, because this scares the life out of me, um, but if this is what you want, I say yes, and I got out of bed, um, and I wrote letters to those two youth pastors who had talked to me just the night before, Larry Klassen and Dan Pantano. And I sent them letters. And then I just kind of stirred around. And finally, the next afternoon when I got home from work, I told my mom. And then my dad walked in and saw my mom crying. And, of course, he, he jumped worst case, you know, 20-year-old guy. <laughs> Mom's crying. What did I do? and told him, and I told him not to tell anybody because <laughs> he was going to a church board meeting that night. And the next morning, Wednesday morning, about seven o'clock, I was at work. I helped run and teach at a, I was teaching at a summer day camp at the church and school. And the pastor's office opened and he comes walking out of his office door toward where I'm at. And I'm thinking, oh, my dad told him. <laughs> And he gets up and says, Mike, I hear you preach. I hear you have a call to preach. Got you scheduled in two weeks on Sunday night. I went, okay, um, I'll have it all done by in advance so you can read it. Make sure it's good. He's like, no, if God's called you to preach, we're just going to have you preach. You don't have to have me edit it for you. And two weeks later on that Sunday night, I was scheduled to preach. And my biggest fear was really that it was not going to be long enough. I wasn't worried about the content. I wasn't worried about being behind the pulpit. I was worried that people were coming. It was my home church. Was this sermon going, even though I had, I wrote it all out and I had the pages, I was like, okay, is this only going to be like four minutes? I mean, which would, in my mind, was a really long sermon, but I knew I needed to be closer to 15 to 20 minutes. Right. And I remember sitting, that was the time when, when you were preaching, 
you still sat up on the platforms and walked to the pulpit when it was your time. And I remember walking to the pulpit that night and this complete sense of calm came over me. And I started and I preached and I absolutely loved preaching, which blew me away. It didn't take the fear of being in front of a crowd away. As I went back to college that fall and took preaching class, my first ever preaching class, and we were required to preach, said it would be twice in class, but if you found opportunities to preach out of class, you could do that. Well, I quickly got on phone and got myself invited to preach at my home church again in an evening. I thought, great, the professor, I'll just tell him I did it. And I told him, he goes, well, we're at the church. I told him, he's like, oh, it's not too far from my daughter's house. He was a guest professor. And he said, I'll show up that night. And all of a sudden now I was at my home church, but now my professor who had just retired from teaching at the seminary preaching for 30 years, um, he had this deep bass voice. Um, his father had taught my pastor, wow. but his name was Oscar Reed. And Oscar shows up and I step up to the pulpit and all I see, he's sitting about halfway down on the center aisle. And I see this big yellow pad of paper whip out. And the whole time I'm preaching, he's writing notes. And I know, okay, my sermon's not that good. He's taking notes about me, not my sermon. And then he said, okay, that's one. And we're still going to have you preach again in class. And the chaplain of the school walked in one day and said, we need somebody to do a preach at a funeral. And he said, I'll give credit to somebody who will preach at the funeral. So I said, I'll preach at the funeral. That'll be my two preaching. I never have to preach in class. So I did the funeral and he still had me preach in class. So I was the only one in the beginning preaching class that preached three times. Everybody else did one. And I did it all to try to avoid preaching. That just put me on the path. Part of my resistance, my first year, freshman, first quarter of college, I took speech because I thought it would help me come out of my shell and maybe get to know people as I knew I was this wallflower introvert. And I set the class records for shortest speeches. <laughs> and so I just, I knew that that couldn't be for me. And that was my first semester. My last, sem our last quarter of college, um, I was the student selected to preach to the whole student body. And it went from being the shortest speeches to preaching in 2,500 people in the student body chapel and faculty. And it's kind of this full circle of God's shaping me for this call. And then it was, from there, it was off to seminary. Wow. You grew up in the church, obviously, right? Yeah. So your first, your first assignment, was that out of seminary that you were youth pastor? Well, out of seminary, had a hard time finding a role. And eventually I went to my uh, my home district. I went to the DS and my pastor, who happened to be best friends from seminary, were best men in each other's weddings. And I knew the needs at my home church. My home church had a Christian school and had very little in the way of children's ministry. And so I went to, his name was Dr. Dean Shaw, Pastor Shaw. He had been my pastor since I was three years old. So I was now 26, 27 years old. And I said, okay, Pastor Shaw, our church needs children's ministry. 
the school needs a second grade teacher. I can teach second grade if the church will call me as their children's pastor and make my job description include teaching second grade. That way the salary comes from the school, the church has a children's pastor, and I talked to the district superintendent, and he said, since it's classified full-time, that would count for ordination. So we worked that out, and I did that for three years, teaching full-time second grade, a self-contained classroom, coaching for the junior high, teaching a junior high elective, running a summer day camp, and doing the children's ministry, and did that for three and a half years. Is that when then you started applying for lead pastors? No, um, I knew I didn't want to spend my ministry at my home church. Right. And I didn't want to spend my ministry teaching second grade. And by that time, I had started doing more with the sixth grade and doing more with the youth ministry. I didn't feel called to be a school teacher. Right. Um, that was a, a means to an end for me. So I, I had sent out a couple resumes. My DS at the time, Tom Goble, he knew me. He had presented my name multiple times around the district, and it was always no because I was single. There were no churches. I was presented probably 25 different churches on the district. There was not a church that was open to a male single pastor. And the last single pastor that district had was in the 1960s, kind of name of Holland Lewis that ended up being a pastor at Detroit First. Right. He was the last single pastor. And I remember during that time calling him and talking with him about how did he navigate this. And eventually my name was, I had actually interviewed as a staff position at Flint Central and that didn't work out. The day that didn't work out, my DS called and asked me if I would consider taking a lead pastorate on the district. He found a church that wanted to interview me. And I said, sure, I'll interview. I didn't expect it to go anywhere. And multiple kinds of interviews, and eventually it went to a vote, and I was called. Only to find out later the only reason this was not revealed to me during the interview process, and I was uh, new enough, young enough, that I didn't ask the right questions. Um, I was replacing a pastor who had been accused of an affair. Now, because a married pastor had an affair and a failing, now they could take a chance on a single pastor. <laughs> well, that's where I ended up. So you, that wasn't the church you're talking about where you had this, all the staff? There was a, there was an, I inherited one staff person there. Okay. And, so you, and yeah. you were there for a while? Four and a half years. It was not a pleasant four and a half years. A lot of heartache there. Yeah, a lot of cleaning up after the last pastor. Except they had swept all that under the rug. Oh. Um, so it, it manifested itself in other dysfunctional ways. Okay. Is the church had a history of sweeping things under the rug um, that I found out about and tried to remove the rugs. Took a lot of shots for that, including from district superintendents by the DS that had called me there had retired and a new one was there who didn't really have huge level of support for for me at least I don't know how other pastors but he was not 
he's one of the reasons why I opted to leave and looked at leaving ministry. Yeah. So how long were you there before you found out about the previous pastor? It was several months. Nobody really knew. It would have been kept so quiet. And somebody, the family that he was accused of, they had left. And the husband and wife had reconciled and were doing well. And they ended up coming back. And that's really when I found out. Oh. And they ended up reintegrating. From what I heard, it was never a physical affair. It was an emotional attachment. And that pastor ended up, it looked like his marriage was going to be saved. And then he had since now divorced and is no longer credentialed. And he's now a national certified, certified national speakers bureau. And uh, high up in there, pretty dynamic speaker and musician and lots of gifts. So you talked a little bit about the obstacles you face and in some of the ways that you that you navigated that. Um, so just, we just talk a little bit about, because I think there is a tendency, you mentioned this, or at least alluded to it at Mac when you were, when you were sharing that sometimes women think that they're the only ones that have obstacles in ministry. Right. Um, just share, share a little bit more about that. And then like, what were some of the practical things that you did to just help you navigate those obstacles? And I mean, obviously we trust God in the process, but the ownership that we take too. Yeah, it's, so I remember back to that time, one, I had to own my call. And as such, I had to engineer, manufacture opportunities to serve uh, because they weren't, churches were not just opening their doors and saying, come on in. I had key leaders tell me, as long as I was single, I was never really going to find a church to serve in. I had one who ended up becoming a high level denominational leader tell me in terms of the church he was at, I would be the lowest person on the totem pole of looking at a youth role because I was single and male and not ordained. Um, Those three, I would be at the very, I would never be seriously considered by a church. I had a couple of other churches that were open to me, but the pastor was like, "I, I think our church would really like you but I'm not sure I can handle working with you because you have more education than I do. I wonder what he'd say now, but um, (laughs) (laughs) then I had another church. They had called me while I was still living in Kansas city after seminary and said, we have a youth role for you. We'd like you to move out here and take it. I talked to the district superintendent there who I knew well. He said, this is a great pastor, a great church. So I was like, I'm all in. So I loaded up my truck and drove out there for the interview with the plan that I was going to be the youth pastor there. And they said, oh, by the way, we have a youth pastor right now. We're in the process. We're going to be letting the person go, but nobody really knows. So don't let anybody know that you're here and why you're here this weekend. Uh, That was a red flag. They asked me to pack up and move out there for this role. And then that didn't work out. Um, eventually, they said when they did get rid of the youth pastor, their re- rationale for not wanting me was because I was a seminary grad. And they had had a seminary grad 25 years earlier who wasn't fun. Therefore, seminary grads can't be fun. And so they hired a recent high school grad to be their 
basically fun time director and the guy was dating and married. And then I remember right after I was ordained, there was a church on the district that was open and the DS was taking my name and another staff, another person who is equally was just ordained. We were ordained the same night. The difference, he had been part of a lawsuit as a youth pastor because a child, one of the teens on an outing had lost an eye from a BB gun. Oh gosh. Um, and that was announced to the lead pastor and the church Sunday morning at prayer time. Nobody knew before that. I could feel the heat radiating off the pastor when the announcement was made because we were on staff together. Um, but both of our names were taken to a church. He had a lawsuit, no college degree. I have, of course, had no lawsuit. Had done well as a children's pastor and had a seminary degree. And the church opted, said they're not interested in me because I was single. They wanted him because he was married, uh, regardless of the lawsuit, other issues. So it was those kinds of things all along and there wasn't much I could do to change anything. It was about being persistent and patient. Eventually got to the point where I wanted to leave the district um, and see if maybe I could get a fresh start somewhere else. That's when I had interviewed at Flint Central the first time. And it was nice to feel like they wanted me. But even then, this is what was relayed to me. The people really, really liked me. I had interviewed there to be a children's pastor. They really wanted me, but there was somebody else they interviewed and that person was married and the board felt that it would be a better financial stewardship issue for them to call the married couple than to call me because with the married couple, they got two for one. So it was those kinds of things in the early years until I'd been in ministry and kind of had a I guess a track record for lack of a better term, but it was, I had to own my call and be patient in that process. I remember at my ordination interview, the district superintendent, Tom Goble, said, Mike, why in the world did you stay with us? He said, I'm not sure I could have stayed with the way you were treated because you weren't married. From the, the disrespectful kinds of questions to all of that, that was just, it was an ugly, ugly time. The questions a single male would be asked in license interviews and those kinds of things. Yeah. Even interviewing finally for that lead pastorate, they opened up the interview to the whole church. So we met in a downstairs in the fireside room with 50, 60 people in there, two and a half, three hours, any questions? and how much of it focused on what my plans were in terms of dating. And it, it was easily half the interview was about my idea of dating. And I had made a commitment early on that I wasn't going to date somebody from the church I was pastoring. And I actually had gone on a date just before I was installed. And that gal came the very first Sunday and everybody saw her with me. And because I said I wouldn't date somebody from the church, they just assumed we were still dating. And she wasn't attending because I, I wanted to pastor. We weren't dating, but I wasn't about to correct that at the church. 
because that kept everybody from trying to set me up with their great niece or whatever. Um, so I just let the rumor kind of go. And You know, you made a couple of comments about the obstacles. I know it's true for me. It's true for all of us, right? We hit these obstacles and then we start questioning the call and whatever, it's time to move on. And um, do you have a demon and a PhD? Is that what you have? Yeah. Okay. So was it your DMIM thesis where you did the why people stay in ministry thesis? No, that was the PhD one out of Michigan oh. State. Yeah. Okay. So will you talk about that that thesis you did and because you shared the main reasons that people stay in it for the long haul in ministry? I think you shared that at Mac, didn't you? I shared a little bit. What I looked at were the stories of early ministers, early career ministers, and the differences in the stories of those who were persisting in ministry beyond five years and those who were permanently leaving ministry within the first five years. Right. And the big areas, everyone who stayed had a mentor. They had a mentor relationship with someone. And oftentimes they had multiple mentors that came from different developmental phases of their lives. So if it's a child that grew up in church, they had connections that dated back to their early days in church. Um, but they had these mentors that provided them a safe place to bounce ideas off, to vent, those kinds of things. Another area they had, they had relationships with their teachers or their faculty as it related to college and seminary that went and extended far beyond the classroom. They were professors who integrated themselves into the lives of their students, which I think that was a powerful thing in terms of a more formal educative process. Another big area was their finances and how they handled their finances, not understanding how much debt could not just cause them to leave ministry, it wasn't necessarily the identified cause. It was usually some area of relationship at a church. But if you unpack that a little bit, the reason they ended up at that church was usually financial. So it was finances that controlled decision-making. The other I found that in the licensing phase of that first five years and while studying, they found places in which they could experiment. They found laboratories where, where they could apply the lessons they were learning in school or in their training and really get to experiment and see what works, what did, doesn't work, and really began to shape. Those who stayed had an expanding sense of call. Those who left limited their call those who left ended up with a very narrow sense of their call. And they said, I will do A, B, and C. And if the church wants me to do D, E, F, I'm out. Or they would say, okay, if you want me, you need to allow me to do these things. And I'm not doing any more than that. Where those who stayed was like every assignment was a brand new tapestry. Right. Um, yeah, I was called to do youth ministry, but they asked me to preach. So I'll try that because my goal is to help the church. Right. So in that sense, they expanded their ministry. 
those were some of the key differences. What I ended up focusing in, every single one who stayed had early church experiences. And that creates a challenge for our denomination, particularly if we do evangelism well, how do we create those leadership experiences later in life for those who come to Christ later in life? It's one thing when a person comes to Christ and their parents were Christian and their grandparents were Christian and they've never known anything but the Church of the Nazarene. They have built-in relationships. They have a catapult, in a sense, into ministry. And how do we redevelop that for different people in different stages of life? So you're saying the ones who who stayed in the long haul typically grew up in the church, is that what you're saying? Yeah, every single person I interview who stayed in the long haul of ministry grew up in and around church. Those who left came to Christ either later and did not have some of those early church formative experiences. Yeah, which how a church handles that and its systems is incredibly important. And nobody is giving real thought to how does a dinner church that is pulling people in later in the life process create a leadership experience for them? How do you recognize the giftedness of a 35-year-old that's coming in to Christ now versus a five-year-old and creating developmentally appropriate kinds of leadership experiences that will anchor them in a new story? I'm curious if some of it has to do with our resistance to plug people in, you know, quickly. I mean, I mean, obviously there's certain things we, um, we don't, we don't plug people in, you know, we're not, we don't make a brand new Christian a board member, right? But right. I think that there are a lot of ways, I mean, we, you know, we, like we talk about here, giving people a place to belong before they believe. So right. we have within, you know, a few weeks after they're participating, they're whatever, they're ushering, they're, right. You know, serving whatever, helping the sound, what you know, whatever, plugging them in. So I, I, I'm wondering. Anyway, that's just my thought. Is I'm curious how much that plays a role. I think it plays a big role, and I think sometimes our systems have lost sight of the networking aspect of discipleship. And what I mean, a five-year-old isn't turned loose to lead something. Right. They have somebody that's working with them but they're involved in some things that give them leadership ability at that young age. Um, Likewise, if somebody comes to Christ at 35, they can be partnered, networked with other people and begin to view leadership development as discipleship, um, as partnering, as networking, because those early relationships will ultimately be formative they will form them. There will be formative processes in terms of the way they will live out and embody their faith amongst real people. And I don't think we give enough thought to the embodiment of our faith and how that looks in the discipleship relationships. Uh, we're too focused, I think, on the regurgitation of content yep. and right answers mm-hmm. and not enough on the nuances 
and the transformative aspect of our faith that can actually transform the mind and the heart. Too many assumptions. We, um, for like for our dinner church that we're doing, the one that, we're, that we do here that meets on this at this campus, we have bags of groceries. And so at the end of dinner, you know, we tell our church members, right, the ones who are attending the dinner, take a bag of groceries, deliver them to your neighbor. You know, you, you have a neighbor or a friend or whatever who has a need right now, take that with you. And so someone someone said, what are we calling, what are we calling that thing that you have them do where they take groceries with them? I'm like, well, I'm calling it discipleship. Right. <laughs> we forget that we start teaching them how to live out that Christ-like behavior before they can even articulate what it means to follow Christ. Um, and so then they're already doing it before they're even, you know, like, kind of like you said, right? Five-year-old cannot tell you, can't spew anything about Christology, but they, they know that how Jesus wants them to love their neighbor, right? Right. And there's an element in which what you're teaching them are the means of grace. Right. And in the means of grace, Christ is present, forming us into his new creation Though we live while new creation is not yet fully fulfilled, we are participants in new creation, and there are means of grace to that transformative work. And unless we begin to embody that, we're going to end up banging our heads against the wall a whole lot. Yeah, yeah, so true. Well, we normally do, we started, how long have we been doing Mac? Our first one was, I think, fall of 2014. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fall of 14. All right. So ministry assessment center and it's spread now every every year. We seems like we have guests that come. Right. Go up to check it out for their district. We've been doing this and we've, our district has transitioned so that you have to do that Mac weekend before you apply for your first district license. Now that we've caught everybody up to speed, right? We got the backlog done. Right. Uh, so not everybody going through, which really did change the dynamics of it from that first year to the this last year, where I think everyone was there, locally licensed. There was no one there who had their district. Right. It really, man, it really changed the dynamics. Not not good or bad. It just was so different. Um, like even my husband was saying, you know, afterwards at the end of the night, the first night, he's like, wow, they just don't seem like they know a whole lot about ministry. And so I'm like, well, they don't have a district license yet. They haven't done. He's like. Oh, like he he forgot that that first year was basically everybody who was ready to get ordained. Anyway, obviously we didn't have it this year because of COVID. So I'm thinking about all those people who are going to meet with their board of ministry for the first time without having it, which um, is just basically old school. This is how a lot of people, <laughs> this is how I did right. it. How, right. you know, um, give some advice to people who are meeting with their board of ministry for the first time, uh, kind of what to expect, what should they be prepared for? And I think they're just going to be asked really to talk about their call, um, talk about why they want to be, why they want to minister in the church of the Nazarene. Can't do a whole lot more than that. They'll be asked probably about their experience of entire sanctification how would they explain entire sanctification, some of those areas? And what are their, I wouldn't be surprised if our groups, because it's on that interview form and their covenant, 
what's an area of growth you want to experience or develop over the next year? And that'll be a, the bare bones of their interview. Whoever they're with is not likely that that group will be their MAC committee. Is mm-hmm. We'll wait and see how many we have for MAC next year. We could have another really big group. Right. That assumes that a new DS wants to keep MAC. Um, I forgot about that. Right. So <laughs> right now we have it scheduled. It's We have a contract for next fall. Um, so we'll kick it up next fall with MAC. And so next year could be those who have six months of district license experience with those who are pursuing their first license. Right. It's going to be very different this year. I think Board of Ministry, we will likely do it through Zooms. And this is the only district I know, so it's hard for me to, I don't I don't have any other, anything to compare it to. Do you think first interview with your Board of Ministry, do you think it's fairly consistent no matter where your dist- district is? I don't think they're consistent across districts. No. I think there are some similarities across some districts, but I would guess that they're they're different. Like I remember my first interview for a district license, I was asked, I only remember one of the questions and it was, what was it like traveling with Stephen Manley? That was my first district license question. But that was in the day when your first license interview was 15 to 20, 25 minutes. Yeah, we should probably tell people, expect 45 minutes for your first one. Yeah. Yeah, we schedule the block of time at 45 minutes, but when the committees are going to turn loose to Zoom, those can go longer unless they schedule back-to-back-to-back interviews. My first one, we were on our district, we still met studies board first, which I think was was Don Alt, Jan Deuce, Russ Summers. Okay. And then there was there was a fourth person, but I don't remember who the fourth person was. Um, and then and then we met with our committee for board of ministry. Yeah, the credential side. So we have both on the have both on the same day. Yeah. And the second and this and then for the credentials part, they just yeah they want to know my testimony and what I was doing at Detroit first. Basically, where was I? Because I didn't have an assignment yet. Um, I had my district license for a year before I had my first assignment because we interviewed Ron Blake. And then that week I got my district license. Okay. And he was at clergy services. So then there was this lag before he came on. It was, right. he was there almost a year before I came on staff. Yep. And I remember my first, it was a studies board and then the credentials board. And it was about 12 years ago here. I remember it was in a meeting, it was Steve Anthony, Larry Betts, Ron Blake, and myself. Um, and we decided let's let's do this as a board of ministry and do away with the separate boards. Yeah. Um, and at that point, we just, we made that change and Ron chaired the board of ministry at that point. And I chaired the studies side within the board of ministry. I didn't re- realize Ron Blake chaired, was chairing it. Yeah, he chaired the board of ministry until he left. Um, and then Steve kind of did a couple of years and then, but he chaired it. Ron chaired it. Steve Anthony and Larry Betts wrote the agenda. So we are still doing the committee. Well, because Dr. Gardner was who changed it to the full board interviews, the ordinance. My committee was 
Glenn Gardner, Vince Flippo, John, John Wright. Wright, and yep. uh, Rob Lewis. And even back, if there was only one ordinance or two ordinance, the whole board would interview them before. Um, it's when they got beyond two interviews, then it went to the committees because of a time. And it was under Dr. Gardner that we decided every every ordinance needs to interview with the whole board, which I think was a really good change. There are some districts that require a whole board for every first-time license as well. Oh, wow. The, and the reason is that way everybody knows the story at the start. Right. And you don't spend the ordination interview catching up. Oh, that's, that makes sense. Yeah, that's true. Oh, man. I guess, it, well, if you have them back, maybe it would prep you a little bit. I don't know. Right. Well, yeah, the year I got ordained, I think we had 13 and we had, and then Judy and she's- Eskelson? Yeah, transferred from deacon to elder. Okay. Yeah. So words of advice for people who have a call to ministry. Take the first step. Take the first step. Talk to your lead pastor. Begin networking. Um, begin building that relationship and find other ministers that you trust and begin involving them in your formative process. And don't wait for others to reach out to you. You need to take the initiative. Yeah. Man, initiative is so huge. Yep, it, it is. It. And that was one of the things of the differences between those who stayed and those who left were in the areas of initiative. Yeah, I'm so grateful that uh, Ron Blake just let me try all kinds of new things. I would have gone crazy if I if I wouldn't have been able to try things, start things, whatever. Right. And and that's one of the key things is finding a mentor and a laboratory in which a person can do innovation, um, a mentor who embraces that approach and a laboratory that allows that to happen. And I think that's one of the, I won't say it's a danger or risk. We are seeing this phenomenon in our denomination, at least on our district, of trying to get to ordination as rapidly as possible. Right. And if you get your district license and you're ordained three years later, there's not a whole lot of innovation and laboratory kinds of things that can happen when you're full-time in ministry. And now folks are doing all of their studies and full-time in ministry, and some are even working full-time outside of the, that, that rush there's not a formative process that can really happen in that kind of time compressed uh, framework. Yeah. As much as I hate to say it, I think you need that time and you need a few crises. Right. Yeah. Which I mean, they, they weren't fun going through, but it's like anything else, right? It's that's really what forms grit in in your in you and if you're going to be in ministry. Yep. And I would also recommend folks spend time reading First, Second Timothy, and Titus, and look at the heartache Paul went through. Mm. Anyway, this was fun. Yes, thanks, Joanne. Thanks for sharing all this stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>